This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. So I love that hymn that we just sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And it's based off of that passage from Lamentations, right? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, for his compassions or his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I don't know about you, but the fact that his compassions are new every morning is a great comfort to me, because I know that I have the tendency to not do the things that God wants me to do. Can anybody understand what I'm talking about? (laughs) Has anybody gone through a season or a series of life circumstances where you chose not to go this way and chose to go in opposite direction? But we have his mercies that are new every morning, and for that we are grateful So I'm so glad to see everybody this morning. Before we get started, I wanted the opportunity for us to say together as a congregation this morning the Lord's Prayer. So you can just remain seated. I know you've been standing for a long time, but the words to the Lord's Prayer are a little bit uh, modern, but they'll be up on the screen. And I would like for us as a church, as the church has said for so many centuries together, as they've gathered for corporate worship On many occasions, they've voiced the Lord's Prayer together, so I would like for us to do the same thing this morning before we get started. So say this along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So just a couple of housekeeping things. Go ahead and grab that insert that was in your program this morning. This is actually something that's really cool. It's like we live in 2022 or something. In the center of the insert, you'll notice that we have access to Lost Mountain Baptist Church's app. So you can grab your device at this time, whether it's an iPad, whether it's a phone or an Android, whatever device you have, you can actually go ahead and download the Lost Mountain Baptist Church app. Just search for Lost Mountain Baptist Church, and you will actually find the notes for today's message that you can fill in. There are a number of different blanks, and so you can just click on the blank as we go through it in today's message, and you will have at your disposal all the, all the notes, and you can actually email that to yourself when it's finished. So that's just another thing that uh, we offer for you guys to make it easy to go ahead 
and take notes and remember this series specifically. We're kicking off a new message series today. We're taking a break from the book of Colossians for the next eight weeks throughout this summer. As many of you know, we're starting Acts and the Mission of God today, and that coincides with our sermon-based home groups that are going to be meeting together beginning this week. I'll speak a little bit more about that. But for now, let's go ahead and just dig in. Now, The Office is a TV show that premiered on March 24th, 2005. It was an adaptation of a single-season British show by the same name. It follows the lives and office culture of the employees of Dunder Mifflin, a fictional paper company set in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Now, one of the characters on the office is a salesman named Andy Bernard. Now, Andy is an East Coast prep school type from a well-educated and affluent family. He's dubbed the office's most unlikely likable character, and you can't help but cheer for the guy. One of my favorite Andy Bernard quotes comes from a two-part episode where the different Dunder Mifflin branches were competing to see which branch could lose the most collective weight in a given time frame. Andy eyes the upcoming challenge with enthusiasm, and he says, Andy Bernard does not lose contests. He wins them, or he quits them because they're unfair. See, there's this basic human desire to be a part of something that's successful, something effective, something that's going to accomplish the purpose for which it exists. A basic desire, if you will, to be on the winning team. Give a child a few seasons on a losing team, even in a sport they love, and they often want to stop playing that sport. Study fundraising patterns, and people do not tend to give to organizations with the greatest need, but organizations with the greatest momentum. So that's what that is about. The impulse is so universal among human beings that it seems almost God-given, and maybe it is, even if given to greater and lesser degrees. When it comes to competitiveness, however, and the desire to win, on a scale of 1 to 10, our pastor Matt would probably be like a 13. We know Matt, we know he's a driven and motivational and motivated type of person, but you get a personality like mine, on that particular scale, I'm more like a three. So he may win more across his life, but I'm more relaxed and I'm probably gonna live longer than he does. So, uh, you know, it seems like a fair trade. So the book of Acts gives us a historical glimpse into the church as God's redemptive movement on earth that will not fail. It marches on. It has been and will continue to be, if you'll permit me to use this term, successful. It's what Erwin McManus refers to as the unstoppable force. And when Gallup releases a study like it did on March 29th of this last year with the title, U.S. church membership falls below majority for the first time, it can cause us, if we're not careful, to lose sight of the beauty, power, and certainty of the church and her mission. See, the church is an unstoppable force. The church will prevail. The church's mission will advance. 
triumphing over every obstacle and every foe. This is the foundation upon which we build our lives as Christians. This is true and we can have full confidence in it because it is rooted in God's sovereign will and in the promises, fulfillment, and results of God's redemptive purposes. Now with this in mind, we turn to Acts chapter 1. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. We're going to kick off in verses 4 and go through 8. And periodically throughout today's message, we're going to be skipping around a lot. So just have your Bible or your device ready to go as we make our way through. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, he says, while he was eating with them. Can you think of several different occasions where Jesus was eating with his apostles and significant things began happening? There's something to us sharing our lives with one another around a shared table, whether it's a meal, whether it's discussion, whatever the case may be. There are many of us in this room that enjoy people coming into our homes and we want to be around people and we want to invest our lives in relationships with other people, which is why I'm so, so excited about the home groups that are going to be taking place beginning this week. On that insert on the back of it, you'll notice that some options are still there for home groups. A lot of them are full, but hey, I would rather spend my week hunting people down to be home group discussion leaders and hosts than have too few of home groups and all of that. So if you have yet to sign up for a home group, please invest yourself and invest your time in being involved in one of these. We've got discussion leaders, we've got hosts, and we can get more. That's not an issue. So if you have yet to sign up for one of those, please do so. Please do so online, come and speak to one of us, write the names of the person that you want to attend at their particular home group on the back of your connection card, and we will get you to the right place and let you know when those things are happening. But when we invest ourselves, when we invest our time into centering around being involved in relationship with one another, specifically for growth in Christ, centering our affections and our knowledge around the word and learning more about him. I mean, come on, the Wilsons have like 25 college age and young adult people that meet at their house every Thursday night. You can tell by that number alone that they're investing their time in in relationship with one another because that's something that's important to them. 
And it's something that's going to be important to us as Lost Mountain Baptist Church as we move forward. But Jesus is emphasizing in this particular passage two things between the time of his resurrection and when he ascended into heaven. He's emphasizing the kingdom of God and the spirit of God. The apostles, however, as usual up to this point, are still having a difficult time piecing things together. So look at chapter 1, verse 6 right there. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Look at some of the words that the apostles are using in that verse right there, like restore, for instance. The apostles are expecting a political and territorial kingdom. And they highlight Israel. Israel, the apostles, when they use the word Israel, are expecting not only a political and a territorial kingdom, but also a national kingdom. And they said, are you at this time? This is something the apostles were expecting that was going to happen immediately. But what does Jesus and how does Jesus respond? Check out verses seven and eight. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36? He communicates to the apostles, it's not for you to know the dates or times. Remember Jesus said he didn't even know that. He says in Matthew 24, 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Listen to what John Stott says. It's important to remember that his promise that they would receive power was part of his reply to their question about the kingdom. For the exercise of power is inherent in the concept of a kingdom. But power in God's kingdom is different from power in human kingdoms. The reference to the Holy Spirit defines its nature. The kingdom of God is his rule set up in the lives of his people by the Holy Spirit. It is spread by witness, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace not a declaration of war, and by the work of the Spirit, not by force of arms, political intrigue or revolutionary violence. So what is Jesus essentially communicating in this passage? He's saying that the the apostles are going to receive power once the Holy Spirit comes on them. They're going to be empowered to continue in the faith, established and firm and not moving from the hope that is held out in the gospel, as the apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, chapter 23. They will confidently make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching those disciples everything that Jesus has commanded. That's the great commission. You and I have been commissioned by Christ to do the exact same thing. And Christ's also he's also communicating that the apostles will be his witness when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in their lives. They will be his witnesses in wider and wider contexts and accomplish Christ's mission in ever-growing degrees. And so this 
explains the church as an unstoppable force. The church is an unstoppable force because of Christ's promises. Christ's, he, he makes specific promises to the apostles that are gathered. And so let's continue on in Acts chapter 2. Flip over one page and we'll begin in chapter 1 and go through, or in, chap, in verse 1 and go through verse 6. Okay, so Jesus makes the, uh, the promise to his apostles, right? And then Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost come about. And so in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Okay, so this is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. This is a celebration containing sacrifices and feasting, and it occurs seven weeks and one day after the Passover. It was one of three annual agricultural festivals commemorating God's goodness from season to season. And it says in 2.2, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. In verse 3, what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated. Any of us that have read this particular passage before, our imagination typically gets the best of us at times, right? Because I don't know about you, but what I see is a literal, violent, rushing wind that almost blows the place down and all of, all of a sudden fire just totally encirculates the room where they're at and it separates into like pieces of fire that looks like tongues and it rests on every single one of the apostles. Is that how you play it out in your mind when you read it? Just me? Okay, forget it. But... When, when we approach a text like that, those are the pictures that we see in our mind. But is that necessarily what is going on as Luke is trying to recount exactly what happened? Listen to what John Polhill says. He was dealing with the transcendent. He's speaking of Luke right here. He's dealing with the transcendent, that which is beyond ordinary human experience and can only be expressed in earthly analogies. So obviously Luke is speaking metaphorically, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, what seemed to be tongues of fire. So while I'm reading it and what I'm visualizing might not have actually happened, there is no doubt that something of extreme significance took place. And the human authors are trying their best to recount what actually happened with human analogy. But 
Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit has now come upon Pentecost and he is changing things. He is inaugurating a new covenant that is taking place specifically. So listen to what John Stott says again. The noise like wind may have symbolized power such as Jesus had promised them for witness. The sight, like fire, purity, like the live coal which cleansed Isaiah. And the speech in other languages, the universality of the Christians, the Christian church. Now, this serves as a good reminder for us to pay close attention as we read through the scriptures in order to understand what was being communicated to the original recipients by the Spirit-inspired author. It's important that we pay very close attention when we approach any passage of Scripture so that we can understand what was being communicated in the light of the day that it was originally written. So paying close attention. Yesterday, (laughs) I read this on Facebook last night. My brother-in-law actually went to Target And he went to the restroom and he was washing his hands and he noticed a guy that came in that was dressed fairly similarly to him. And so he didn't think really anything of it and he just washed his hands. He exited the bathroom and no sooner had he exited that, that he felt an arm wrap itself around his waist. And the lady connected to that arm, asked, so after this, do you want to go to dinner? (laughs) And you have to know my brother-in-law's personality. He's a pretty funny guy. And of course, he just goes along with it. And he says, sure, where are we going? And at that moment, the woman looked at his face, realized that it's not her husband, and is absolutely mortified. And so my brother-in-law, Craig, got a really good laugh out of that. But man, it just goes to show you, we have to pay attention to the things that we're devoting our attention to, to make sure that we have a good understanding of what is going on. The Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost is the identifying marker of this new covenant age, the time from the death of Christ until he returns again. Listen to what David G. Peterson says. The Pentecostal gift is God's empowering presence with his people in a new and distinctive way, revealing his will and leading them to fulfill his purposes for them as the people of the new covenant. So the church is an unstoppable force because Christ's promises are fulfilled. Christ's promises are fulfilled. Everything that he is communicating to the apostles, that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they would be his witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. These promises are fulfilled. And it's amazing what begins taking place as you read throughout the book of Acts and you read paying close attention to what Luke, the original author, is trying to communicate, what he's trying to get across. The Holy Spirit has come. 
and the disciples have received power, just like Jesus said they would. Now let's go uh, to chapter 2, verse 14. And I want to talk a little bit about what has happened directly after the Holy Spirit has come. I mean, this is, this is Peter's great address, right? And we're going to read a couple of verses through here. But beginning in verse 14, it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. And so, okay, people began to hear everything that was being communicated in their own native languages. And some are writing it off as, these brothers are hammered. I don't know what's going on, but something, and I can't really explain it other than them being drunk. And Peter is like, no, 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 not at all. That is not what is happening here. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So Peter is reaching back to Old Testament prophecy to explain to them that something is being fulfilled that the prophet Joel has communicated. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And on and on and on he goes. In verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So Peter, at this point, filled with the Holy Spirit, is letting them know what is going on. And we reach to the end of chapter two, and it says, these people are cut to the heart so significantly that they don't know what to do. And so they ask Peter, what are we supposed to do in light of everything that you were communicating to us? And he essentially communicates, repent, turn away from former ways of living and be baptized. Accept that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through him and devote the rest of your existence upon this earth to his service for his glory. And what does it say? Upwards of about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. And so we are literally seeing the birth of the church of Jesus Christ take place before our eyes in chapter 2. This is a monumentally significant event that takes place in the book of Acts. And it's the very reason we're sitting in these seats today. 
something has so happened in our lives, it has been disruptive in such a way that Christ's Holy Spirit now indwells every single person in this room who has called upon the name of Jesus to be saved. Therefore, you are no longer living for yourself. You are living for the very God and Savior who has purchased you by his own blood and sacrifice and resurrection. Can I get an amen? This is what is occurring in the book of Acts. But it's interesting because we see the response that happens in chapter 2. Upwards of about 3,000, like I mentioned, were added to their number. But that's not always the response. That's not always what people buy into. And we'll move on to chapter 7 here in just a minute. But man, if you haven't read this portion of Scripture in a while, I encourage you to take some time this week and read that because there is a lot that elapses between chapter 2 and chapter 8. But moving right along, I want us to go to chapter 7. So things are happening. The church is born. People are meeting in homes. They're laying down their stuff. They're selling their possessions. They're breaking bread together. They're sharing meals around the table. They're excited about what the Holy Spirit is doing in their midst. And they realize that this is something that they have never been involved in in their existence. But we reach this point where Stephen shows up on the scene. And if you haven't read Acts chapter 7 in a while, I encourage you to do that as well. Because what Stephen really rolls out here is the entire biblical narrative encapsulated in 50 to 60 verses. And so we can back up a little bit uh, to chapter 6 and start in verse 8. It says, Stephen seized. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. I like that verse a lot. I like that verse a lot. Because conventional wisdom cannot stand up to biblical wisdom. And what that needs to communicate to us this morning is that we need to be investing our time in biblical wisdom. And we can't invest our time in biblical wisdom unless we are consulting the source from which biblical wisdom comes from. And that is the inspired word of God itself. Because we believe that this word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so we have to be in it. Christians have to be in the word. And what it says about Stephen is that people couldn't match up to him. So what do they do? 
they start spreading lies about his character. What did they do to Jesus? They started spreading lies about his character. And so we see that they couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Okay, Sanhedrin is a little... It's a different word, and we have to have a little bit of background as to what's going on. The Sanhedrin was a group of high priests or high priests that included their family, as well as many affluent men, maybe civic leaders of the time, but also scribes. And they comprised about 70 individuals. So these people brought Stephen and set him up in a, in a, like a room full of 70 people. So 70 people against one man, yet that did not stop him. That did not sway him from being, to, being able to communicate the wisdom that God had given him. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is not going to be intimidated by people's false accusations. And that says something to me as well. As a 21st century Christ follower, I cannot be swayed by everything that is occurring in our world right now. I have to fix myself and plant myself in the word so wholeheartedly that it's just coming out of my mouth, that it's what I speak about. As Peter mentions, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. May it be so for us as 21st century Christ followers, that we can't help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. And it's the same with Stephen. He's standing before 70 members of the Sanhedrin, and he is unapologetically not backing down to all of the insults and all of the lies that are being hurled against him. And what takes place? Man, the guy just starts talking. He starts talking about Old Testament prophecy all the way back to when God initially communicated his plan to Abraham. And man, line after line, I mean, he's just laying it out there for him. And we come to the end of chapter 7. And we go to verse 51. Oh, and I love this. Stephen is so amped up at that point with the wisdom that God has empowered him with. 
And he essentially says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You were just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels and have not obeyed it. I mean, man, man, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that particular setting? He's hurling this right back at 70 individuals who have had nothing but false accusations to communicate to him. And he's like, you know what? You're just like your fathers were. And now you are denying the very Lord of glory himself. And you have no right to partake in what I am speaking about because your hearts have been hardened to the truth. And we know what happens, right? They begin picking up the stones to throw. This is a very different outcome from what we've seen from Peter. We've seen 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and the church is born. But a different scenario where a representative of Christ is standing before the hard-hearted members of the Sanhedrin and all that's left is his eventual death. But even then, even then, Stephen isn't swayed by this. I mean, his physical nature will absorb the blows and those will in fact hurt him, obviously, as the stones are being thrown. But what does he communicate? He's essentially saying, I'm seeing heaven opened up. And I'm seeing Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And even then, man, they're closing their ears. They're labeling him blasphemous. But what does he say right before he takes his last breath? Don't hold it against them. This is a, a representative of Jesus upon the earth. And he is about to take his last breath. And yet he's communicating, you know what? Don't hold this against him. So what we see is the embodiment of Christian character in Stephen. And we have that to look to as an example for how we ourselves respond in various circumstances, right? I would venture to say that not a lot of us in this room have encountered a similar scenario, but that doesn't mean that many people on this earth even today haven't. And so there's a, there's a decision that has to be made for us Western Christians, right? Right? We know what's going on around us. I don't have to communicate anything to you that you see on the news. 
that we have seen even throughout the last month. There is damage that is being done, but Christians are called to press against that darkness with the light of the glory of Christ himself. We are his representatives. We are his ambassadors upon this earth. And I have to ask myself the question, what am I doing with that? What am I doing as an ambassador of Christ? How am I, Jake Turner, being a light in this dark place to push against it for the glory of my Savior? Because the very same Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost is the very same Holy Spirit that now indwells me, indwells all of you who have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So how are our lives ever being conformed to Jesus himself? That's a question that I'm having to grapple with. It's a question that you have to grapple with. How are we being his representatives upon this earth with the time that he has entrusted to us? As Christians, there's a commitment to biblical teaching, worship, and prayer. Go back to verse chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, yeah. Verse chapter, what am I saying? I don't know. Go back to chapter 2 in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is another reason why I'm very excited about the opportunity to gather in these summer home groups. Because as a staff, we're really hoping that this pushes us into a season where we continually gather in small settings like this in each other's homes and we are literally playing this out. We're sharing meals with one another. We're sharing our lives with one another. We're creating environments of trust where people feel safe to disclose the things that they don't disclose to anyone else. Trusting that those are in confidential environments where all we're doing is trying to hold one another up because life is significantly difficult. It's a place where we don't have to play games. There doesn't have to be pretense. You can communicate who you are and what you struggle with. And that's not going to be held against you because you're in a safe place. You're in a place where you have things in common with other believers who know the struggle. And that's a place where prayer can happen. And we can see deliverance from these things. 
we can see the Holy Spirit actively at work in these environments. And then as situations and circumstances beyond our control continue to happen, these people in our groups are the people that we call on. Hey, could you meet me somewhere? Could you pray with me? Hey, wherever you are, whatever, you do, whatever you're doing, can you stop? Can you just pray for me? I don't know about you, but I want to be in those types of environments where I know that I'm known and cared for and challenged and encouraged. There's a commitment to sharing your life and your resources. Some of us have things. Some of us don't. And as a body of believers, we're called to share those things with one another. There's a commitment to be gospel witnesses in word and deed, leaving the results to the Lord. Sometimes we will have those opportunities where we have Peter addressing the crowd moments. And sometimes we will face the rejection of those Stephen moments. Either way, we're entrusting God with the results. We're saying, you know what? I know God has called me to be a witness to the gospel. And whatever that entails, I'm going to walk obediently in that. We spent last week in Texas. Man, I'm glad Georgia is my home now. Texas is very hot. And I don't do well in hot environments. So now that I'm back here, everything feels right and everything is good. But we were, we were attending an intensive at Baylor University with N.T. Wright. You've heard Matt talk about N.T. Wright several times. We were actually sitting in the same room with one of the premier theologians in the entire world. And it was really intimidating for a guy like me because I'm just kind of like, yeah, I'm a pretend intellectual. And I'm sitting in a room filled with PhDs and various types of theology and I'm just trying my best to keep up with what's being spoken. But there was something in particular that N.T. Wright spoke about the characteristic of Christians. And he said, we are to be people of lament because that's a necessary component of being a Christ follower. We will endure seasons of great difficulty and therefore we're called to lament. But he says, people of lament, Christians are to be people of lament at the places where the world is in pain. And that just struck me. Because you think about uh, the mass shooting that happened in Uvalde just a couple of weeks ago. And you think about the number of churches and the number of Christians that have just flocked out there to be able to serve these people. That's an example of what I'm talking about. People in lament at the places where the world is in pain. That's what God's called us to. We can do that. We can accomplish those things. So the church is an unstoppable force because Christ's fulfilled promises, they produce results. They produce results. 
We were not saved for the sake of being saved. Yes, you can say that we were saved from something, but more importantly, what? We're saved to something. We are saved to something. And that is the fulfillment of the commission that Christ has entrusted to us as his followers. In the introduction of Erwin McManus's book, An Unstoppable Force, he describes the mission, the missional life cycle of local churches that remain a force for the gospel across the years. He writes, when a healthy relationship exists within the life cycle, a selflessness of giving oneself away is created. The more we focus on our own living, the less we are concerned about giving life to others. The only way church buildings stay filled through generations is if the church lives and dies and is born again over and over. Soon we realize that the church is not the same church it was 20 years ago or even four years ago. To make the kind of impact in human history that God desires, we must find our fulfillment in the rightness of this life cycle. In the end, it's not so much about prolonging or perpetuating our own life as it is about giving new life to others. So McManus is exactly right. The church really is an unstoppable force. And if we want to be a faithful expression of that great truth, we have to be a church of people who consistently give ourselves away. Trusting in the promises, fulfillment, and results of God's redemptive purpose, we become people who die to ourselves, our preferences, our what's-in-it-for-me mindset, our tendency to view the church as a provider of spiritual goods for our consumption. And instead, we give ourselves away for the sake of the gospel, the beauty and power of God's good news in Christ. We give ourselves away to one another, and we give ourselves away to the world around us. That's when, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we truly become part of God's unstoppable force. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning, and I have to ask myself, is what do I choose? What do I choose to give the remainder of my existence upon this earth to? And if I am a legitimately born again, regenerate follower of Christ, it's no longer about what I want. Because his spirit has indwelt me in such a way to where conformity to him means I want the things that he wants. And I want to pursue the things that he wants me to pursue. It's his glory upon the earth as it is in heaven. So let's be about those things. Here in just a minute, we're going to invite every baptized believer to participate in communion. This is a significant ordinance because what are we doing? This is obviously symbolizing the body and the blood of our Lord. And as we take it together, we are proclaiming his death until he comes again. 
So at any point during this last song, you can make your way out of your seat. You can come to one of the communion stations. For those that need a gluten-free option, those are in the back tables. But take the piece of bread, dip it in the juice, pray in groups of people, pray individually. But we are going to take the supper together this morning, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus is our hope. And we can place everything about our lives into his trustworthy hands. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have made a way through your son, Christ Jesus, to be reconciled to you. Because for our sake, you made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become your very righteousness. So I pray, Father, as we prepare our hearts to partake of these elements together this morning, the bread and the cup, that we would partake of it understanding that there is something that you have saved us from, but more importantly, you've saved us too. And that is the commission that you have entrusted to us. Reaching to the uttermost parts of our community and ultimately the world. Help us to realize that because of your spirit that indwells us, we are burning lights in dark places. We desperately need you, Lord. (laughs) We choose our own paths over and over again. Would you forgive us of those things that we have done that we are not supposed to do? And would you forgive us of those things that we are supposed to do yet have not done? I pray over every person that is either in this room or watching us online. There's a battle going on within each of us. The weight of this world is too much to bear at times. But help us to understand that there is overwhelming victory in Christ because he is our hope in life and in death. So as we stand from our chairs, as we make our way to the table this morning, let these truths be afresh in our thoughts that you have overcome sin, that you have overcome death. And that has granted us eternal life in the presence of the holy and righteous creator and sustainer of all things. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. Thank you.